Now today, as you have heard, we launch a series that I'm praying will change your life. Why? Well, it's a series on hope. This human longing, this longing we all have that things will get better. That we will find, we will discover love, happiness, peace, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Now, I as a man love the Bible. And for me, the Bible is a lifeline, it's sunshine. It's the ultimate meal time. It's hands down the most profitable exercise time. Now why? Why is that true for me? Because the Bible exposes my blind spots. It calms my fears. It moderates my reactions. It renews my heart. But most of all, most of all, it fills me with hope. Hope when I see the beauty and the glory of God's love for me, his plan for me in Jesus Christ. And over the years of the many wonderful books in the Bible, I have discovered that the words of Peter in 1 Peter helped me as much as any book in the Bible with my up and down battle with hope. And I believe 1 Peter has the power to change your life. So let's look today at just the first two verses. It's the introduction, Peter's introduction. And follow with me as we read beginning in Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now, blood is a figure for Christ's death here. Now, I began by talking about hope, and you're saying, hey, Rob, where's the hope in this? The word's not even mentioned. Oh, what is going on here? Well, I owe you an explanation. And let me unpack it this way. These first century Christians, the readers that Peter has sent this epistle to, are not being murdered. There's not mass persecution and martyrdom going on in this section of modern-day Turkey. This was a vast area, actually, that these provinces represent. But instead, what was going on is these Christians were being ostracized, marginalized, uh, disdained because of their robust, their dynamic stand for Jesus Christ. They were outspoken about their relationship with Jesus Christ, and it was costing them. Now, the first century world was obviously very, very different than our modern Western world today. But the prevailing contempt Throughout the Roman Empire, uh, the scorn towards Christians was identical to what Christians increasingly experience today in the West, especially from the elites. 
So I wonder this morning, have you ever been rejected or isolated? Have you ever been thrown under the bus? Have you ever been cut out or, or, or cut off or lost something or experienced something simply because you're a Christian and you'd love to stand up for Jesus Christ? If you go back uh, to the last presidential election, presidential candidate Bernie Sanders illustrated this for us when very publicly he announced that this certain individual, this man was unfit to run for public office, to hold public office, uh, simply because he was an evangelical Christian who believed that Jesus Christ was the only way. Now that's the world we live in today. And it was the world that Peter's readers lived in. So Peter doesn't begin with this casual, hey, how you doing? What's happening, man? Instead, he does a deep dive right at the beginning, uh, telling these Christians who are, whose backer is against the wall that the way they relate to culture isn't so much what they do, but understanding who they are, understanding their identity. And then in two verses, he says two things. First of all, you understand you are in exile, and second, you understand that you are chosen. In other words, Peter is saying you have a purpose, and you have a hope, you have an assignment, and you have a security. And if you like CIA-type movies like I do, what Peter is saying in these two points is you have a mission, and you have a safe house. I mean, think Jason Bourne. I mean, you've got Jesus, and down here, you know, you've got Jason Bourne. And actually, the analogy really doesn't work because safe houses weren't very safe for Jason Bourne, right? So what I want to do this morning is I want to focus mostly on the mission, mostly on what Peter has to say about this. I'll spend the bulk of my time here, and then we'll go to the second half of this. Uh, at the end. So what is our mission? Well, Peter describes it in one word. It's the word exile. It's the word that occurs in verse 1. And so our mission is to live as exiles, to understand we are exiles, to embrace the wonderful reality that we are, we are exilic disciples. Now, what does that mean to be an exile? Well, it means you're not a tourist. It means you're not a native. It means you're a foreigner. Uh, who was raised in one country and you find yourself now living in another country. A country, as a matter of fact, uh, with beliefs, values, and traditions that are different than where you have come from and who you are. Now, when we get to the New Testament, this term exile, and we see this with Peter, is used as a metaphor, a figure of speech to describe who we are as Christians. We are on mission as exiles. And the reason it works so well, the reason the New Testament adopted this, is because as Christians, our primary allegiance is to our Heavenly Father. And He is the one that shapes our beliefs, our values, and our traditions. Now let me show you an implication of this. Turn to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Peter says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, now those are used synonymously, to abstain from sinful desires. Why? 
They wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So what does it mean? What is one of the implications of being an exile? Well, in any given culture, you will be both accused and praised. You will be accused of being wrong, being narrow, being naive, being simple-minded, of doing this, of doing that. You will be accused, but you will at the same time, because of your life and your love and your good deeds, you will glorify God. And frankly, one of the ways you can tell whether you're living as an exile is if both of those are going down in your life. That you stand up for Christ, and so you experience accusation. But on the other hand, man, the way you live and your commitment to Jesus and the Spirit working through you, uh, people notice that. And God is being glorified. Now, I want to spend some time unpacking this concept of being in exile because it's so important. It's actually a critical Old Testament concept. And it comes from two different periods in Israel's history. And the first period is what is called the Jerusalem period. And we talk about the Jerusalem perspective. Now the Jerusalem period was the golden age of Israel. Under King David and King Solomon where the world came to see the temple, came to see and hear the wisdom of Solomon, where in Israel there was incredible national identity and support for Israel's belief in one God. There was political and social uh, uh, security. Uh, There was uh, flourishing throughout the land. And that period, the Jerusalem period, went on for a while, but it didn't last. And some centuries pass, and it gives way to the second period. And that period is called the exilic period, when Israel goes into exile. The exilic perspective. So after the centuries, because of Israel's sin, Israel's unbelief, God forcibly removed Israel from her homeland, and scattered her and spread her and made her live in pagan, hostile, foreign countries, especially the brutal, particularly hostile country of Babylon. Now, what these periods represent, and this is where I I just love this, is two different visions of how we as Christians today can relate to the world. And Peter calls us to one. He calls us to embrace not the Jerusalem perspective, but the exilic perspective. He tells us we are exiles. He tells us to give ourselves to exilic discipleship where instead of experiencing the comfort and the security and the favor of Jerusalem and expecting the world to come to us because somehow we're so neat or so cool as as Christians, we recognize, no, no, we are exiles. And we're under a foreign power. 
we're in territory where we feel alienation, where we don't have the, the, the security and, and the backing and the favor of Jerusalem. But we don't despair. Nor do we despise our culture. Because our mission, we're exiles, is to engage the very culture we have differences with. Now, what I'd like to do is illustrate this and, and, and tease out what it looks like to be an exile, what it can look like for you and I as we move into 2018. So what I want to do is go back uh, to an important passage in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 29, where Jeremiah the prophet has written a letter to the Jews living in exile in Babylon, telling them, how to relate to this particular difficult culture. So turn in your Bibles with me. We'll put these words up on the screen to Jeremiah chapter 29. And I want you to see three characteristics here of exiles. Now, by the way, let me just say parenthetically, for those of you that aren't sure about the reliability of the Bible, you want to believe the Bible, but you have doubts about the reliability of the Bible, look at this picture. Uh, this is a Babylonian tablet. The writing is called cuneiform. It was the language of Babylon. There's been thousands of these tablets discovered in Babylon. And on some of these tablets are the names of the Jews that were taken into captivity in Babylon. As a matter of fact, if you look at chapter 29 and verse 2, you see the name of the king Jehoiakim. His name is on this tablet. His name is on other Babylonian tablets. The point is, there's never been an archaeological discovery that's disproved the reliability of the Bible. Archaeology only supports the Bible because the Bible is true. So let me give you exilic discipleship characteristics number one. So fasten your seatbelt. Here we go. I hope this will bless you. I hope that God will use this to help you understand what it means to live as a follower of Christ in 2018. And the point, the first point is exiles thrive. We thrive not because of culture, but despite culture. We thrive because of our faith in God. And so what do we do as exiles? Well, we settle into culture. We embrace culture. We enjoy the elements of culture that we can. So look at, let's pick it up in verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those, now notice, I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God is saying I am the one that caused you to be a minority culture living in a pagan culture. It was my doing. I carried you. We'll see this over and over in this section. It was a part of my plan to make Israel exiles. And the same is true with us today. And that's why Peter begins with the word exiles. Let's continue, verse 5. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, 
Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. Now this is all Jew to Jew within the context of Israel. So that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. This was absolutely shocking. If you're a Jew, you're in Babylon, Babylon's just destroyed your country, you have extended family members, uh, parents that have, have been killed, uh, who knows? God is saying, do not isolate yourself. Do not live on the fringes of culture. Uh, do not succumb to a holy huddle. God is saying here in verses 5, in verse 5 especially, do not despise, do not despise the Babylonian culture. Oh, can you believe how terrible Chicago is? Can you imagine living in the city? Can you imagine New York? Can you imagine Los Angeles? We as Christians don't think that way. We enjoy culture. We engage culture. We do not condemn culture. And God says, man, settle in. Exiles are to engage with culture, live in it, work in it. Embracing the tension, then there will always be tension. Expecting difficulty, uh, conflict, because we stand for Jesus Christ. We're not silent partners. We stand for Jesus Christ. Look at how David Kim, my friend David Kim, expresses this. He writes this. There is comfort and security in Jerusalem, discomfort and insecurity in exile. In Jerusalem, you are the dominant culture and your sense of identity is constantly reinforced by the surroundings, so much so that your identity can be taken for granted. In exile, you are the minority culture in a foreign world and there is a constant awareness that you do not fit in. Yet at the same time, you are called to seek the common good of the kingdom that can be quite hostile to you. Uh, this is the evangelical teacher in the teacher's lounge. This is the doctor in the doctor uh, lounge. Uh, this is you around the cooler at work or, or, or wherever in, in your neighborhood and there's a party and suddenly you realize, um, man, I, I'm an exile. And I want to say to you today as strongly as I possibly can, and I'm saying this because I love you. To the extent you understand you are in exile, will make or break the way you live in culture in this next coming year. You and I are exiles, and that has everything to do with our expectations, everything to do with our understanding. So, for example, let me go back to the Jerusalem period. During the Jerusalem period, Israel was united uh, around its belief in God. And for centuries, the culture supported that belief in God. Just like for centuries, here in the United States, our culture supported our belief in God. But today, we live in Babylon. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean we live in a pluralistic culture that marginalizes Christians in academics, in politics, in education, 
in different quarters and different sectors of our culture. But even though we are the minority culture, we don't withdraw, we don't condemn. What do we do, man? We build homes, we settle in, we farm, we work, we engage in the life of our culture. We thrive. Characteristic number two, what does it mean to be in exile in 2018? Well, what Jeremiah tells us is exiles don't compromise. Man, you students, I want you to hear me in this. Exilic discipleship means we are like, but unlike. Let's skip a couple verses we'll come back to, and let's pick it up in verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and the places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now these are incredible promises, right? Many of you have memorized some of these verses. But they assume that when the exile is over 70 years later, Israel's identity is still intact. Her spiritual identity, her ethnic identity. Now I do not, I have no way of knowing what 2018 is going to bring for you. Uh, uh, for me. But I do know if we as Christians withdraw from culture, as culture gets increasingly chaotic, as culture gets increasingly difficult, you know what's going to happen? We're going to lose our audience. And we will be perceived as spiritual porcupines. But on the other hand, if we compromise with culture and we become totally like culture and we are assimilated into our culture, we will lose our distinctives. We will lose our identity. We will lose our, our message. And as Jim Peterson says, we will become like spiritual chameleons. Now, which are you? I hope neither. Because what Jeremiah is saying is we maintain our identity. I mean, think of Joseph living in Egypt and, and resisting the advances of an Egyptian leader's wife when she invited him to go to bed with her, to commit adultery with her. And that woman had social power over Joseph, but Joseph refused, living in a foreign culture. Or think of Moses, what Hebrews 11 tells us about Moses. Moses chose, he intentionally chose to be mistreated by standing with the people of God rather than enjoying the passing pleasures of his experience of royalty in Egypt. I think of Daniel in the lion's den. Willing to be thrown into the lion's den. Can you imagine because he would not bow to the gods of the Babylonian culture. 
Now let's talk about today for a minute. One of the dominant values of our secular Western world is what is called individual autonomy. You know what this is. This is, you know, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do it my way, and, you know, it's all about me, myself, and I. So as a result of this dominant value, it's so embedded in our culture that often we're not even aware of it. Sociologists call that a plausibility structure. This individual autonomy is a plausibility structure. It's just part of the air we breathe. So as a result of this, as a consequence of this, self-fulfillment, self-definition, and personal happiness are increasingly what drives the engines of people's lives here in the United States and elsewhere. But you know it's not working. We are told it's not working. It's not working in our families. It's not working in our schools. It's not working in our Cities, it's certainly not working in our government because everything is about the individual. It's this rampant individualism. Me, myself, and I. Let's take marriage. Your spouse wakes up one morning and says, do you know I've had a complete paradigm shift and it's a new year and going into this new year, I have decided that the only way I'm going to get through this new year, the only way I'm going to get through this marriage is if I I place me first. And so my orientation uh, going forward is me first. Well, I can tell you where that marriage is going to go, right? I don't need to tell you where that marriage is going to go. Boy, are they going to struggle, and that marriage will eventually die, probably. But on the other hand, if that spouse wakes up in the morning and says, you know, God has been really speaking to me, And I, I, I've been wrong because I've been too much about me. And so instead of a me-first orientation in our marriage and in my life, uh, would you help me? I'm not going to do this perfectly, but would you help me, dear? I want my orientation to be a you-first. What's yours? Me-first, you-first. And if in your marriage, your orientation is you-first, man, is that marriage going to thrive? It's just going to thrive. So where are you as you go into new 2018? Is it about you, me first, or is it about the others around you that you are here to serve and love? See that they flourish. What about Jesus? Jesus came into the world knowing that the world would kill him. And what was Jesus' orientation? What did Jesus say? Jesus said, you first, you before me, my life for yours. Can you say that? If you're dating, can you say that? Uh, Is that how people see you in the marketplace at work? Are are, are you generous with your resources? Are you engaged with the needy? Uh, Do you know some of their names? Uh, Do you reserve sex? within marriage, a marriage of one man to one woman. You see, we are like, but we are unlike. So lovingly, there's areas we resist, we don't participate in, we don't enjoy. Third, the third characteristic of what it means to be an exilic disciple, what it means to be exiles, is found in verse 7, and it is we love, we love, we love. Look at this marvelous verse. This is one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have called you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. 
Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This had to be the most shocking statement in this letter of Jeremiah. You know what Jeremiah is saying? He is saying, we don't pretend to love, we love. Our lives are not about getting, they're about getting or giving. Not about getting, but about giving. Uh, It's not because we agree with everything, participate in everything, enjoy everything, but because we want to see others served, others blessed. People who don't know Christ, people who are stuck, people that have actually hurt us or been disappointed with us. We want to see them cared for, served, and loved. We want to see them come to Jesus. So peace and prosperity, these two words in the NIV. In the ESV, it's one word, the word welfare. Come from the Hebrew word, this great Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. And what I want you to understand here is that our mission as exiles is to seek the shalom of others. You first. You have this need. And what does shalom mean? I mean, shalom means we as Christians, as followers of Christ, uh, understand our expectations are clear. We know who we are. We are exiles. So what do we do? We seek the flourishing, the wholeness, the peace, prosperity, the the welfare of our neighbors, our co-workers, of of the pockets of needs and the culture around us. John Piper, in his book, excellent book on racism entitled Bloodlines, says to be a Christian is to move toward need, not comfort. To move toward need, not comfort. In other words, verse 7 means we live in a culture that frustrates us, disappoints us, that we don't disagree with, with an outward orientation. I want to seek the shalom of the city. I want to seek the flourishing of Chicago, of West Chicago, the communities around us. This is the Jewish mother that's so involved with some Babylonian uh, neighbors or community members that when one of those Babylonian children is sick, she's there knowing that that child's father was a Babylonian soldier involved in the destruction of Israel. It means that uh, there there are uh, Jewish business people who understand as as they farm, as they uh, do crafts, as they engage in different ways, as they work, that he or she sees his work as an opportunity to be a tool of grace in the lives of others. So I wonder, how are you going about seeking the peace and prosperity, the welfare of the city? Do you as a family have a flourishing project? A shalom project? How about your small group? If we're going to be the community of God here at Wheaton Bible Church in a larger church like this, we've got to be in life groups. We've got to be in small groups. You're in a small group. You're in a life group. What's your shalom project? Well, I've been in this group for 30 years, and man, we get together and we pray for each other. Well, man, that is wonderful. But if there's not an outward orientation, you're missing what it means to be an exile. 
Don't do that. All right, now let me conclude, or almost conclude. And the question I want to address here is how do we pull this off? How can we possibly live as exiles? What is it going to take when there's dissonance and antagonism, alienation? And this is Peter's second point in verses 1 and 2. And his answer is by understanding your safe house, your security, understanding you have been chosen by the living God. So Peter tells us in these two verses that to be a Christian is to be elect. It's to be chosen. It's to be foreknown. Now this is hard for many of us. We respond, well, what does that mean? We're robots? And the answer is no. But I will say to you, we tend to err in the opposite direction. So we think we choose God, that our salvation is ultimately in part because of what we have done, when here Peter is introducing a a deep biblical reality that the reason we choose God, and yes, we do have to exercise belief, is because God has already chosen us. And he did so before the foundation of the world. Just as he chose Israel before Israel ever had a chance to choose him. Uh, We see this vividly in the concept of adoption. What's adoption entail? Well, the parents choose to adopt. They choose to adopt. They make a decision, we're going to adopt, and they adopt. Uh, This is what Jesus was getting at in John 6, 44, when he says, uh, no one comes to me apart from the Father who draws them. No one apart from the Father. So when we come in verse 2 to this term foreknowledge, foreknowledge does not, it does not mean God merely knows ahead of time those who are going to choose him. Frankly, that's a weakening of the term. Rather, it means that God set his love on the church, on believers, before the foundation of the world, for ordaining that we would belong to him. Now you should be asking the question, what in the world does this have to do with being an exile? And Peter's answer is, man, this is the only way. You will handle uh, persistent cultural dissidence uh, and alienation because you are standing and you are outspoken about your faith in Christ. And, and what, what, what do you mean? I'm, I mean, you understand your confidence is in the sovereignty of God. And that he has chosen you and he has appointed you to a mission from before the foundation of the world. So our hope isn't in our earthly status, our hope is in our divine status. I came to Christ, I was really outspoken, I was actually obnoxious. Frankly, Rhonda says sometimes I still am. And um, I was in a fraternity, 100 guys in a fraternity, and it only took about three and a half months, and I lost every single friend in my fraternity. I chose, I had chosen not to be a silent partner, but I had chose to aggressively talk to everybody about Jesus. And you know what got me through that? Was understanding <laughs> that my um, earthly status, my social status, isn't nearly as important as my heavenly status. 
You see, you can face all the rejection, all the disdain, all the disappointment in the world if you know that God has placed you securely in the palm of his hand. Amen? So hear me. Election in the Bible isn't an abstract theological formulation that God has woven into the tapestry of the scriptures to frustrate you, to distress us, but it's life-giving hope for people who are being cut down by culture. This is the same hope that a divorcee has. A boyfriend or girlfriend that's just been uh, broken up with. Somebody who's been rejected at work and always has to stand on the outside. Maybe you've lost a job. Or you've, you're in a family, an extended family, and you're misunderstood because you're the lone Christian. And I lived that way for a, a while. What Peter is saying is such good news. He's saying, God is your safe house. And he loves you so much, he has chosen you and appointed you before the foundation of the world. And as a matter of fact, this is so sweeping. Your salvation is so sweeping that all three members of the Trinity are involved in it. So look at verse 2. God the Father purposed it. God the Son accomplished it by his death on the cross. And God the Spirit applied it to your life. That's how much God loves you. That's how much this matters. So yes, we are exiles in 2018. But if you know Jesus Christ, you have been chosen by the King of Kings. And his love for you is so deep, so broad, that you and I can't get our minds around it. Now I've got to shift gears and talk for a minute about something else before we conclude. Over the years, I have said repeatedly, this is one of our values, that Wheaton Bible Church isn't a country club, we're a hospital. We're all broken, we're all bleeding spiritually in one form or another, but basically what that means is that we're a family, we're a body of believers, we're a community. So we pray for one one another, we bear each other's burdens, uh, we know each other, we are known by each other, and we are in groups. And I have a prayer request. And my prayer request is on Wednesday, what is that, just three days from now, I'm going to have surgery. Uh, Because just a little while ago, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Actually, Lon and I talked about this for the first time on the same day. Uh, This was back in late November. And um, what this means for me, in my particular form, is that I'm going to go in, Lord willing, and have surgery and might take out my prostate on Wednesday. And then I should be cancer-free. My prostate cancer is not aggressive. It's highly treatable. The docs have told me there's a 95% cure rate. And so I'm really, really thankful for that. But I I do want to say, and this is a little personal history, when I first came to Wheaton Bible Church years ago, 
I never thought Rhonda and I would lose our spouses to cancer. Awful, terrible cancer. And I never thought that now, 12 years later, I would stand before you and tell you I have cancer. And I want you to know, as you might surmise, this has been really hard for our seven kids. So I'd love you for you to pray for a successful surgery. I'd love you to pray for our uh, uh, adult kids. But I also want to mention, after that first um, round of uh, um, brutal cancer that led to death, I wrote a book entitled, When the Bottom Drops Out. It's a book about suffering and death and loss. And in it, I tell the story of our experience with cancer and then how God brought Rhonda and myself together. In my book, I say one of the things that got me through that horrible period was a deep confidence in the sovereignty of God. And I expressed it this way. God has a plan for my life, but that plan involves pain. Bowering the words of another, I, I said it this way. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. I talked about the fact that for all of us, all of us, uh, Lon and me and, and for each and every one of you, every now and then God brings along a hard assignment, a mind-numbing assignment, and, and God in his sovereignty and his goodness, goodness gives us hard assignments in life. And so I wrote that book, and now years later I want to tell you my confidence in the love and the sovereignty and the goodness of God is way deeper than it was even some years ago. And so I am confident, as Lon is confident, as our spouses are confident, that we are in God's hand. And if you're going through something and you're struggling with that confidence, you're struggling to find comfort, you're insecure, man, I want, I want to say, get my book. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Better, you can go to our, our, our bookstore. And I'm not trying to sell copies of my book. I don't need to. But I do want you to know the comfort and the confidence we have in the sovereignty of God. You see, now here I'm back to 1 Peter. I know, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt I have been chosen and appointed by God. And my days are in his hands. Do you know that? I want you to know that. So John Walker, the chairman of our elder board, we're going to do it a little differently than we did with Lon's announcements of his cancer. And Lord willing, this is going to be the last of these. John Walker is the chairman of our elder board, and John is here to pray. Thank you, Rob. Uh, before I do lead us in prayer, um, I just want you to know that by God's grace, Wheaton Bible Church is very strong. And it's a testament to Rob's leadership that he has over the years put together an incredible leadership team and staff. I've had the privilege to see that up close, and, and uh, it's amazing the depth of leadership we have. So Wheaton Bible Church is going to be just fine, going to be good, and I want you to, to know that. Um, one other quick thing. Uh, I think you know what to pray for for Rob, but I just want to add one thing. Pray that after the surgery that he'll stay in bed long enough and rest long enough because he's not wired that way. He is not, 
He's not wired to, to sit around. So pray for him that way that he will uh, give it time. Let's pray together. Dear God, we love you. We love our brother Rob, and we pray for him now. And Lord, we pray that your healing would be upon him and, and in him, that your grace would be upon him, also upon Rhonda and their children, that they would have a sense of your presence uh, through these times and through some difficult times that you would be right there with them. We also ask for our dear brother Lon and his wife Marie that you will give these same blessings. And we're aware, Father, that in our congregation and in this very service, there are others that have comparable issues that they're wrestling with. And we pray your grace and your healing upon all of these members of our body. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, John. Uh, church, let's stand together, if you will, as we're praying for Rob and Lon.